You're listening to the Uncensored Direct Marketing Show. This show is designed for direct response marketers who want raw, unfiltered conversion tips and secrets to scale their offers profitably to reach their next million. I'm Maria Sparagas. I'm the founder of Direct Paynet and your host. Now let's dive in. Hey everyone, I wanted you to know that this episode was recorded before the legal issues for Pornhub arose. I do not condone nor encourage non-consensual or illegal production of adult content. I will have an episode shortly discussing the legal implications and my thoughts on the victim's claims. If you have any questions you'd like my input on, feel free to drop me a line. So my guest today is Justin Goff. For anybody who doesn't know Justin, um, he is one of the founders of Copy Accelerator and is one of the most successful people I know in the direct response space. And everybody already knows him, but I will let him make a brief introduction as to who he is and what he does. So Justin, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I got started in this industry back in like 2004 doing affiliate marketing mostly. I've done kind of everything from affiliate marketing to SEO, to freelance copywriting, to kind of running a couple of my own businesses, info product businesses, physical product businesses. So I've kind of uh, been through all of it. I would say my, my biggest break was 2014 to 2017. I built a supplement company up to $23 million in sales and uh, ended up selling that to my partner. So yeah, after that, I basically took a year off and I started the program, which I run today, which is Copy Accelerator with my partner, Steph and Georgie. Maria is a part of the Copy Accelerator group where we basically help copywriters and we help business owners in the direct response space to uh, increase their conversions, get more customers, make more money and have a better business. So yeah, that's kind of a brief intro on on me and, and what I'm doing. Awesome. Well, I do have to vouch for Copy Accelerator being a super awesome program. So this is my second year in the program. It's it's helped me tremendously just kind of learn how to dial in my own offers. Not that I'm not selling products, but it's a B2B product and just learning about email strategy and, and different tools and techniques that you guys use just to, you know, uh, talk to your customers, just help me as a business owner in general. So um, definitely if anybody is interested in Copy Accelerator, you guys should really check it out and you can get some really, really good tips on copywriting and business in general. Um, so moving along, Justin, obviously with coronavirus, we don't want to, you know, talk about that too, too much. Everybody's kind of beating that a little bit too much uh, to death in terms of a topic, but it is obviously a new reality that we have and things are changing a lot. And a lot of people who are doing very well are not doing so well anymore in terms of their products. And then we, on the flip side, we have, you know, a lot of people in the health and beauty space that are just doubling and tripling their revenue. So what do you, what do you see coming in direct response in the next like 12 months or, you know, any tips or tricks that you would say to direct response marketers to survive, you know, Corona and just kind of the new reality? Yeah. I mean, I would say one of the biggest things we've seen, I would say this year so far is people not being so reliant on Facebook anymore and pushing into other channels, uh, YouTube probably being the biggest one. Uh, I feel like YouTube's really come on this year in terms of a major, major traffic source for uh, a lot of the biggest players in direct response who are doing a couple hundred, even thousand sales a day. And a lot of that's coming from YouTube. And kind of the reason for that is Facebook's uh, compliance is just super, super strict. Uh, It's hard to get around. And then YouTube is kind of a little more like the Wild West. It was like, Kind of back when I met you, when Facebook was like 2008, where you could <laughs> you could just say whatever the, the hell Wild you West, <laughs> you could just run whatever ads you wanted. <laughs> they didn't care. YouTube's not that bad right now, but um, you can definitely say a lot more than you could on YouTube. So, 
I would say that's a big change. Um, a lot of people move into that. A lot of people uh, doing big dollars with native as well. And, and you're kind of seeing too, I would say one of the biggest things I've kind of seen is a lot of brands who used to be super, super aggressive with their direct response have been kind of dialing it back a little more. And I, I think that's, I think that's obviously part of as you grow, like if you're a $2 million business, you're not really on anybody's radar. If you are a $100 million business, you're you're on people's radars. So being super aggressive when you're a big, big company is usually not a smart strategy. And then we look at companies that play it very kind of by the book, like the V shreds and the golden hippos of the world and like they're thriving. So I, I definitely think kind of getting a little more cleaner in terms of copy and claims and stuff like that. I think it's definitely going to continue to change. And I mean, that's not to say like black hat and gray hat stuff's going to go away by any means. Like that's obviously not realistic uh, because there's just way too much money to be made uh, (laughs) doing that type of stuff. (laughs) But I think the people who really want to build long-term businesses that can scale and that are not at the whims of, getting booted off Facebook any second are definitely going to kind of, I think, kind of fall into this a little, just a little cleaner uh, kind of direct response. Because it's one of the things you, you realize with direct response when you've been at it a while is, oh, I'm saying it this way and we're getting a great conversion rate. I know if I say it a little more aggressively, we'll probably get a much better conversion rate. And it's just like those little like tweaks, you just kind of keep tweaking. It's very easy to just kind of go over that edge and be like, Oh, hard to draw the line. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to draw the line. I I see this like every day. People, you know, merchants that we work with, it's like, oh, the, you know, we're just gonna say that it, it it treats this now and see what happens. Well, yeah, uh, <laughs> don't 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 do that. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I definitely get your point about crossing the line, and it's 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 so kind of tempting, right? When you're when you're like, oh, well, I can get five percent more, I can get ten percent more conversions if I do this, and and but at the, on the flip side, you know, you get your chargebacks, you get your risk, and then you get um, three-letter acronyms that come knocking down your door. So <laughs> you definitely <laughs> you definitely want to try to avoid that. But um, definitely the new, the new reality and just, you know, talking about YouTube and so forth, I'm seeing a lot of people that are just diversifying in general, you know, going to YouTube, going to native, even, you know, like second tier, um, you know, like Yahoo and and Bing and all this stuff. Um, just the name of the game, I guess, is diversifying your traffic sources. It's, it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, Facebook, I feel like just so many of the big companies we work with were just, I mean, probably 80% of their traffic was Facebook for so long. And now they're being a lot smarter about that where, maybe Facebook's down to 40% of their traffic and they're in a better position now to grow. And if shit hits the fan on Facebook, their entire business isn't going to fall apart like it kind of previously would. Um, I mean, that's pretty common sense, but you'd be shocked how many people have a $20 million business that's entirely reliant on one traffic source. It's, It's quite scary when you think about it, especially as one as fickle as Facebook. Like one of my buddies said Advertising on Facebook is like driving a Ferrari on like an eighth of a tank of gas. Like that's that's basically uh-huh. what it's like. And you're just any sure. minute waiting for it to crap out. It's just gone, gone. See yeah. you later. Yeah. I mean, you could be doing, you know, two, three, four million dollars a month and then they make one change in their policy and you're done. I mean, that to me is is just madness. Like if if a business owner hasn't kind of thought about that and 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 planned for it. So 
definitely something to consider if, if you're just doing Facebook is to, you know, start diversifying slowly, at least to get some more traffic sources and, and, and increase your business that way. Talking about also kind of the changes and in, in the new reality mentally and just kind of your mindset, like what do you think has changed or what, what's causing people now to like not be able to make it in, in this new economy? So one of the biggest problems we see over and over again is people losing focus and trying to do too many things. So we mentioned kind of diversifying traffic sources. The big problem you see with this, though, is like someone launches a new offer or they launch three offers and they're trying to make it work on YouTube. They're trying to make it work on Facebook. They're trying to run it on Google. The odds that you're going to be able to launch something or launch multiple products and get all of them working is slim to none. This is why Steph and I are always, we're huge on like really focus on one offer, focus on one traffic source. And when you get that dialed in and you're bringing in 300 customers a day or 500 customers a day, then start branching out and trying other traffic sources or maybe launch another product. You you don't need five products. You need one product. I mean, you look at all the people who are doing really well and bringing in tons of buyers every day. Almost all of them are doing it from one product. Um, mm-hmm. besides probably like the big, big, big people like Golden Hippo and Agora and the V shreds, like they, they have the bandwidth to do multiple products and, and just trying to, trying to focus on three or four things at once, the odds of one of them getting to be successful is just not good. So that's probably a big, big issue we see over and over again is just diluting your, your concentration, diluting your focus. I think it's a huge issue. And just kind of building on that, in terms of pre-COVID, post-COVID, is there anything that you would say just on mindset that you would change uh, in terms of your business practices? Like obviously Copy Accelerator, you guys came up with, you know, the light program to address the fact that, you know, there's some people that can't travel and maybe have less funds and so forth. And I feel like that was a really good thing to launch during COVID just because people obviously maybe are are considering, you know, big investments and so forth and maybe want to dip their toes into something. Thing. Is there anything like that you would suggest or tips or strategies for, you know, entrepreneurs and, and marketers to kind of test out now that, you know, we're in a different type of market? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really obvious during kind of the the prime parts of COVID was seeing which niches were doing really well and which ones kind of like took a big hit. Obviously, the, the majority of the stuff that happens online and in direct response improved because there were just more people online all the big advertisers pulled out of Facebook and stuff like that. So clicks were a lot cheaper and a lot of people were doing pretty well, despite the fact that, I don't know, 20, 30% of the United States lost their jobs and like Mm. international pandemic and everything kind of shit hitting the fan. But yeah, I mean, are are you in a niche that when the economy turns, are you going to be okay? Is it, is it going to be better? Uh, Are you going to take a huge hit? Like, I think it was pretty obvious to a lot of people in, um, like, we got a lot of people in BizOp that we work with who COVID was a blessing for them. Like, they're seeing numbers up 30% over what they were in in normal times because there's a lot of people out of jobs looking for ways to make money. There was other people, like, um, we had a guy in the mastermind who was really big into golf, had like a $40 million golf business. Well, when all the golf courses shut down and the kind of sweet spot of golf is spring and summer. His business took a pretty huge hit. So, I mean, kind of being aware of that, it's interesting to think like, cause someone who just got in this business seven or eight years ago has never 
been in a business when there's been like bad years. Like it's just been the economy's just gone it's up. It's just for been the good. Lives. Yeah, for like yeah. 10 years. <laughs> Every, everything's been good uh since 2008. So I think it was kind of a wake-up call to a lot of people that this stuff's going to happen. I mean, there's gonna be another recession at some point and shit's gonna hit the fan again. And it's kind of up to do you have the kind of business that's going to be able to survive that? I think this was kind of given a good peek into that for, for a lot of people. For sure. I mean, just talking about, the, you know, the biz op space in general, what I saw in biz op that's kind of interesting is I saw a lot of the smaller ticket offers kind of started taking off, you know, like a lot of the biz op stuff that we worked on with a lot of our merchants were pretty high-end, bigger masterminds, big kind of event type stuff where it's like five to 10, maybe $20,000 a ticket. I started seeing a lot more just in general, those like $147, let me show you how to do this. Uh, $497, let me give you a three-part series of of that. So it seems like a lot of direct response marketers are are just, you know, adapting to the new reality. So definitely, I think, um, you know, the point that you mentioned of the economy and most people in our space are, you know, under 35. So it, it's very possible that most of them have not been around 2008 and and everything that happened you know during the the economic crash then so now it's 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 definitely time to kind of think about okay let's have some smaller ticket products that adapt to a bad economy and then when the economy goes better then we have you know larger ticket masterminds and so forth so very interesting point and um definitely diversifying your offerings is is what i got from that answer specifically so, I mean, in terms of, you know, talking about 2008 and everything that perspired from there, I know that we had a really interesting conversation in Vegas uh, pre-COVID, which feels like it never happened. I feel like I can't believe that we were a Copy Accelerator like the week before the shutdown. I, it was actually unbelievable for me. I came home and then three days later, it was like, you can't go anywhere. What the hell? You have COVID. Don't touch anybody. Don't go. I was like, what? <laughs> so I'm happy that we actually got in that event. It was so timely. It was like, for me, it was like one of the greatest events, by the way, that I've ever attended in my 14 years in this space. I'm not going to say how old I am. I've just been in the space for 14 years. Um, um, so yeah, it was definitely, yeah, exactly. 25. <laughs> I was like 12 the first time I went to internext. So yeah, it was definitely such a great, uh, event. And, uh, funny enough when we, we just, I just, cause I'm late everywhere just by the way. And I happened to stroll in probably the last person at the member's dinner and the only seat available is right in front of you. And I was like, Hey, perfect. I couldn't have actually planned this better. I get to talk to Justin the whole night. <laughs> and I did, I think I talked your ear off, but, um, we had a, a pretty interesting conversation about my start in the industry. So I'm actually curious if you have any, uh, any follow-up questions to that discussion or anything that you, any burning questions that you have about my, my background. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, for people listening, Maria, I met Maria, this is probably what, 2008, 2009-ish. We met at at an event back then. And this is when you were doing all the merchant processing for basically all the biggest porn sites, which I remember when you explaining it. And it was very interesting to me because you're like talking about, I just assumed like, oh yeah, you got the credit card, the credit card gets charged. And you're like, oh no, no, no. It's (laughs) like, you gotta have like a PhD to like (laughs) get all these merchants. web of mids. (laughs) Yeah, it it was was pretty fascinating. But I'm actually curious, because I I don't know if I heard how you actually got into that. So, I mean, it's a pretty interesting job. You were saying like running all the merchant accounts for all all these huge porn sites that process millions upon millions of transactions a month, which is just insane in itself. But like, how, how did one actually get into that world? Because 
that's pretty similar with a lot of people in direct response. Nobody's like 10 years old and like, I want to be a direct response marketer. Like it's not, everybody just kind of falls into this by like some weird way. So I'm actually really curious how you, how you got into it. So it is, you know, I didn't grow up saying I want to work for Pornhub or or, or anything like that. That would be really bad. Uh, my parents would not like that. Um, it, it was just, again, by accident, I, I studied to be a, a DBA, which is like super boring, but I had some technical knowledge and I had some friends who were kind of cropping pictures and becoming affiliates in, in the uh, porn space. So they were just cropping some pictures, getting some affiliate revenue from there. And then um, they decided that they wanted to kind of try their own pay sites. So they put up a couple of sites and saw, you know, hey, you know, there's some traction, there's some traffic. And this was, by the way, in 2004. So it was really, it felt like, you know, porn, the internet was built for porn, basically. And then we were kind of working on that momentum. I just joined in my friends. We, they had a site called browsers.com. Browsers was a pay site, you know, 25 bucks a month or, you know, kind of very simple business model. You pay, you get in, you watch as much porn as you want. And you head out. And then from there, obviously, uh, the pay site business like took off. People were ready to pay for porn. People were ready to consume it. And then from there, we noticed that there was a trend kind of, of people offering a lot of free porn and free access to, to content. And it got us a little bit nervous. Uh, and it was like, okay, what do we do next? Um, I mean, I can't take the credit for it, but the team, you know, kind of looked upon YouTube as kind of the perfect example of like where web 2.0 was going and decided to create Pornhub. So I was actually there the first day that we got traffic on that site. And it was actually super, super amazing just to see all that traffic coming in and people kind of going crazy and upgrading to, you know, Pornhub premium to get a better experience and all that kind of stuff. So it was really just a big accident of me you know, being bored at like a pretty boring job that I had before after I finished university. And it was like, my friends are like, Hey, we're making a thousand bucks a day, cropping porn pictures. You want to join? And I'm like, yeah, all right. And that's, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> it was, it's as simple as that. Uh, such a good story. Um, I think people would be pretty shocked by the volume that porn sites do. Like, can you give us kind of an idea of how much they're making? Like how many like members they have stuff like that? Well, I mean, you know, in terms of their specific numbers, I'm not involved right now. It's been a while, so I don't have their exact figures. But the company, the the parent company of uh, browsers and Pornhub, I mean, the, the pay sites or the content paid sites are not as big as the, the tube sites. Obviously, the tube sites are making the most money through ad revenue. So the business model even evolved. People are, are not really paying for that content. They're paying for ads on those sites. Right now, that parent company is worth at least half a billion dollars. And it has about 75% of the online porn traffic. Uh, wow. Pornhub is one of the top 10 sites in the world. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking here like millions upon millions of users. And in fact, what happened after COVID is that the company and just all of their properties just exploded even further. So um, it, it's, you know, everything from uh, cams to amateur content and so forth that like really went through the roof. The cam sites just, you know, kind of taking it a step further and really uh, carving out the the cam portion of the adult space. Cams are doing insanely well because, you know, uh, people were going to, I don't know why I want to call it a titty bar, but it's not, <laughs> I wonder what it 
appetite. I'm like, why am I calling it this? But yeah, you know, I guess going to to a strip club or, or whatever, you know, is not possible during COVID. There was a lot of people who were, you know, stuck and, and kind of needed their fix. So the campsites went like, you know, two, three, four times um, in terms of traffic. And then in addition, there was a lot of new entries. So a lot of new actresses, a lot of new you know, just a lot of new talent, you know, um, I think you sent an email about OnlyFans just recently that I read that and I thought, you know, you're, you're, it was very poignant, but, you know, OnlyFans and platforms that just have that one-on-one kind of girlfriend experience just went insane. So if it was worth half a billion before COVID, I would easily say, you know, at least 20% extra in terms of, you know, the COVID effect. So that's, that's a business that actually benefited considerably from COVID. That doesn't surprise me. And it's interesting. Yeah, like you said, the the certain niches kind of took off, like the cam girls, because they basically replaced strip clubs. That kind of ties back with what we were talking about before, how, yeah, certain things just during COVID did really bad. Certain things like COVID was like a huge blessing. I'm sure porn, 100% COVID was a huge blessing because people are just online all the time. They're bored out of their mind. People that are actually like locked down and couldn't be hanging out with, guys couldn't be hanging out with girls that was probably just a huge, huge uptick in them in terms of uh, cash and visitors and all that. Um, One thing I I want to ask you, so when you worked with Pornhub and them, you were actually in the office, correct? Yes. What is the the actual experience like working at a porn site? (laughs) It's actually really, it was really fun. I have to say it was like, it's, it's such a cherished memory that I have. We were, you know, we were all 20 somethings, you know, it wasn't like a big corporate company or anything. Like, I think I was the oldest and I was like 27. So it was like, really like, they're like, she has experience. I'm like, I'm literally 27 years old. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but it was, uh, you know, we had like a very corporate looking office in a nice office building, but then it was just a whole bunch of like, you know, tech geeks and and nerds that were just sitting around their cubicles, kind of programming stuff, cropping stuff, creating. Uh, We actually had some like video editors. We had writers on staff that were writing the scripts. Those were always fun. Writing a script for a porn uh, video is (laughs) something that I have to say was really a a, a funny experience for me. And then we had, you know, different codes. Like if if a banker would walk in, we'd be like, tippy-toe, tippy-toe, tippy-toe. I'm like, hey, that's like super obvious, guys. Like, you know, people (laughs) will realize. So we're like, how about we say like banana cake or something? We had like the weirdest experience because we were all such newbies and we never really ran a business and we didn't really know the, you know, how things should be. But that was like the magic of it is that we just did whatever the hell we wanted. And for some reason we were making like millions upon millions of dollars. Um, So everybody was happy. The staff was happy. I mean, nobody could, you know, complain about working there, especially in the early days. I don't know what it's like now. It's a, now it's a, a little bit more of a corporate big company, but back in, you know, the beginning years, 2005, to let's say 2010, it was, it was a little bit like the wild west. We just kind of, people would make suggestions and be like, hmm, sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. So it was a, a, a fun, fun atmosphere for sure. So the merchant processing with obviously certain industries is really hard because banks will just not put the sale through. I'm curious. So you started doing that with sites like Pornhub and browsers. How did you actually learn all the stuff you know now? Because you, you know, just a boatload about how to get stuff through and how to actually get processing and how to make sales go through and monthly recurring stuff to go through. I'm curious, like at the beginning, was this just all super new to you? 
Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, it's really strange because I started out like my job there, or what I had started doing was I was the affiliate manager for Jug Cash. So the big tit niche, that was me. I took care of the affiliates in that niche. And then I was kind of getting tired of being an affiliate manager. I was like, ah, this is kind of boring. Like, let me do something else. So then they put me into HR because um, they figured it'd be easier for me to hire programmers as a woman versus a, a guy calling another guy and saying, hey, do you want to work for a porn site? So I had I, I brought a little bit of elegance to the HR team, I say. Uh, hired about 45 to 50 developers, I guess, while I was there for, for, for in the HR team. And then from there, I was like, I hate HR. I actually really dislike doing HR and listening to people's problems and things that they need. I was like, I'm, I'm done with this. So I was given a project that was supposed to be a, a one month long project, which was uh, we were working with like third party payment providers. I'll leave them unnamed, but everybody who's in the space knows who they are. Uh, they were clipping us like 10 to 15 percent off every sale. So like the processing fee was 14.95 with one of them plus 10% reserves. So for every dollar we made, we only had 75 cents in our pockets before we can start doing anything. And we're like, okay, well, now's the time to start optimizing this. How do we, you know, how do we not pay this much money? So I was like, all right, I'll take care of that. Let me, let me see how this, this, all this stuff works. I didn't even know what a merchant account was. I was like, what the hell is a merchant account? Like, okay. So I was like, oh, well, we'll just like, we'll call RBC. We'll get a merchant account. You know, RBC is like Bank of America <laughs> in the US. It doesn't work like that. RBC does not want people selling porn memberships through their, their payment platform. So I kind of went down the rabbit hole of offshore merchant accounts, creating companies to accomplish accommodate the offshore merchant accounts and just kind of setting up a gateway, creating our own checkout pages because uh, using a third party, we had to use hosted payment pages. Um, so funny story is my first checkout page was unencrypted because I had no idea that I had to like encrypt it, SSL, all that stuff. I had no idea. I just put up a page and credit card data was just moving. And I got a call from somebody at one of the banks we were working with. They're like, what the hell are you doing? And I'm like, oh, oh, that was just a test. Sorry. No, I didn't mean to do that. So it's a lot of uh, mistakes that I made really early on that I was like correcting along the way. Uh, so it was such a good education for me. And, and I had a couple of good agents that were basically like me, what I'm doing now, but you know, they were, they were my agent at that point. And I slammed them with every question and every, everything I can ask until we got our rate to like about 4% all in from 15. So I literally, you know, myself and a couple of people single-handedly uh, added 11% to the bottom line with, you know, some tweaks in the payment side. That's really interesting to me because uh, I feel like as a business owner, that's a spot where we focus a lot on, let's say, getting the conversions on the front end and getting the traffic and getting the upsells dialed in. But most of them are probably drastically overpaying with stuff on merchant accounts and the reserve and stuff like that. And not even thinking of that as like a needle mover that could really change the business. Because I mean, the difference between, like you said, that merchant account and what you kind of eventually landed on, I mean, is it completely changes the cash flow of the business. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and I say this all the time to a lot of the merchants that we work with is like, you're, you're spending so much money to get the traffic. And then, you know, you're not doing anything on your cart to, to convert those sales. You're just sending them to one merchant account, seeing what happens. And then, you know, if, if the person declines, there they go, but you've paid already to get that person in your funnel. Right. So, um, monetizing that, that traffic is, is, 
as important, I think, as getting the traffic, right? So definitely focusing on payments, focusing on your checkout and just really having all that stuff dialed in is is such an easy win that people ignore and, and, and merchants in general ignore. I would definitely say that, you know, spending a couple of hours and and figuring out what your your process is right now so you can see how you can tweak is 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 huge. I mean, for us, there's a couple of big things when I was at Pornhub that really just made us so much money. One of them was, you know, the payments angle, taking the payment fees and, and dropping them down. And secondly, we were really capitalizing on the fact that we were in Canada uh, and we were everybody was paying us in US dollars. So we started like really focusing on exchange rates and moving money when uh, it was most beneficial. And we were, you know, it was insane. Whenever we'd see the Canadian dollar kind of like drop by, a, you know, a dollar to a, a cent or two, we'd move like millions of dollars. And then just by waiting a couple of days or a week or whatever, we'd make an extra like 3% on our money. So stuff like that. I mean, we were young, but uh, we were unafraid. We were just like, oh, let's do this and let's change that and and whatever. And, and I guess the inexperience really paid off because we made so many good moves that made so much money at the beginning that we were able to like fund hiring like 90 developers in like two years. Wow. That's crazy. I'm curious with the, you've mentioned the offshore uh, merchant accounts a couple of times. And I know it's something I don't really know anything about, but I'm curious, like, who are those actually for and like, who do they kind of really benefit the most? So, I mean, I guess some of the black hat marketers are best served with the offshore merchant accounts. And when we say offshore, it really, when people think offshore, they think like Panama or some of the more like grayer jurisdictions. But if you're in the US and you say offshore, you can also mean Europe. So depending on how much volume you're doing, you know, if you're starting to get to like six figures a month in European volume, you can save so much money in merchant fees because interchange fees are so low in Europe that if you get a merchant account in Europe, you'll slash your fees in half for all your European volume. So if you're paying, let's say, easily, if you're in the States and you're processing European credit cards, you're paying four or four and a half percent, you go to Europe, you're going to slash that to like one to two percent. Wow. I, I did not know that. One of the interesting things we, we always see is as people grow, they need to get more merchant accounts. Let's say if you had a, I don't know, $20 million business in the health niche, like, what would a person who's at that level, how many merchant accounts would you think they should have? You know, I get that question a lot, funny enough that you say that it's, it's, it really all depends on the risk profile of the merchant and how aggressive they're going to be in their marketing, right? What kind of traffic channels, like if you're in the health space and you're buying 60% of your traffic on porn sites, you're going to need a lot more meds than the guy who's getting, you know, uh, top tier Facebook traffic, for example. So it, it, it depends. And then if you have subscriptions, you know, that obviously tends to charge back more. I like one thing that you guys uh, said, you know, at the Copy Accelerator, I can't remember, I think it was you or, or, or Stefan, instead of having subscriptions, why not offer bundles? You know, I, I'm seeing that trend a lot and that really does a couple of things. It increases your revenue like straight off the bat and it also lowers your risk. It lowers chargebacks and, and refunds and all that stuff. So thinking about not only how many mids that you need in order to kind of make sure that you're scaling effectively, but also thinking of strategies to kind of lower your risk. Cause you know, 25, 30 bucks a pop per chargeback, it starts getting pretty expensive when you're, when you're at two, three, 4% range. So uh, I want to hit on one more thing with the subscriptions. Subscriptions are one of those things where everyone wants to get people on continuity. And then kind of, like you said, it's, it's really tough. It's almost like running an entirely different business. Like you need a lot of help to have a subscription go because as you know, subscriptions decline. 
Uh, you got to follow back up. You got to try to recharge them. There's just like 9 million things you got to do compared to kind of selling a bunch of stuff up front. I'm curious for people who have subscriptions, what are some of the kind of like the methods you recommend to try to make sure more of those charges go through? So obviously in terms of conversions for your subscriptions is, you know, obviously you try to charge them exactly on the same day that you charge them the first time. So if you were successful on the 16th of the month, then you try again on the 16th of the following month, because certain people pay their bills at certain times. So that's one thing. The second thing is kind of focusing on the decline salvage. So meaning if somebody declines their subscription rebuild, what do you do with them? What is your strategy? Is there, are they just gone away. Cause what happens with most merchants is once somebody declines, they're just out of the funnel and they're done. I mean, that's a little bit of a waste, especially if you're paying an affiliate on the front end, I don't know, a hundred bucks for that sale. And, and the, the customer never converted on, on their subscription. It's a huge loss for, for merchants. So determining like a good salvage strategy is, in my opinion, is really important. So say your subscription is a hundred bucks a month, just, you know, whatever on, um, September 15th, a hundred bucks goes through October 15th, a hundred bucks go through. And then November 15th, a hundred fails. What do you do with that? Number one, try again three days later. Don't try the next day or the same day. It just doesn't really make much sense. If somebody pays their credit card today, it's going to take one or two days for it to post. Um, so try three days later. If that doesn't work, then wait another couple of days and try decreasing the price. So if your, your subscription is a hundred bucks, try 50 bucks or even try 20 bucks. You know what I mean? Try something really low just to see if you can capture that money to keep them in your, in your rebuild cycle. And then hopefully you grab 20 bucks this month and then next month they can rebuild again at the regular price. So just kind of, uh, lowering the price so you can capture the money and keep the person in your funnel, especially if you have a content business, like it doesn't cost you anything. So why not just at least grab that 20 bucks and keep them in your funnel, add an extra month to his lifetime value and just increase your profits there. So that's, that's another big thing. And then another interesting way of, of kind of salvaging your, your declines on subscriptions, trying to charge customers at the beginning of the month. So just in general, people pay their bills on the 30th, 29th, 31st of the month. So there's a lot more credit available at the beginning of the month. So if you're going to try uh, your attempts, you try again, maybe on the first or the second of the month to try to capture that. But the one thing that I always have to caution merchants, they they get a little bit crazy with the decline salvage. Some merchants, when they start doing it and they start hitting the card like every second day or every day for like, you know, three weeks or something, you definitely don't want to be doing that because then you might get blocked by the, the customer's card. So it's just being strategic with the salvage. And if you're using a decline salvage tool, like there's companies that do this for you where they charge you, you know, a percentage of your, your rebills, just make sure you understand what strategy they're using and th that they're not like, you know, taking the piss out of customers and trying like 15, 20 times and, and then screwing your merchant accounts up. Right. Do you want to jump into chatting about the checkout page? Yeah, sure. I mean, what can't we talk about the checkout page? And I think you guys um, also uh, in Vegas had quite a number of tips that I've used for my merchants. And uh, I've given, you know, I do some consulting and I do some, um, you know, I, I give my merchants a lot of tips because obviously if they make more money, I make more money. So everybody's kind of happy with that. But just checkout pages in general is such a, you know, we're always talking about, you know, A-B testing your funnel and A-B testing your landing page and, and all that stuff. I rarely hear merchants testing or A-B testing their checkout page, but that makes a huge difference uh, in terms of 
customer confidence and, you know, how quickly somebody can get through your funnel and buy something without interruption. So just focusing on your checkout page is, is such an easy thing to do that takes very little time that can add, you know, two, three, four, 5% on your sales numbers. One thing that you guys had, had mentioned that I thought was interesting, and I know that you know a lot about this as well, but it was like the, the buy now button or like the, you know, place your order. I had a merchant just recently, he had something like just very benign, like submit order with like a very orange color, like just a very drab color. We changed it to red and put pay now. And he literally saw an uptick of, I think like almost 1%. So uh, that was something I learned in Vegas. I can't remember who said it. I I don't know if it was you, but that was like, what what a small thing to do that takes like the better part of 30 minutes to increase your revenue by 1%. Uh, Well, not revenue, your conversions, you know what I mean? So that's big stuff. And, And then optimizing for mobile you know, making sure that your your page looks good on iPhone, on iPad, on every type of tablet, every type of device is is super important. I don't know if you have any experience with that or what do you, what do you feel about, you know, kind of the checkout page format? Have you noticed anything on your end where people are doing stuff differently that it's it's increasing their conversions? I mean, the biggest thing is always creating that trust with the security and making it feel like a safe purchase. Every test I've ever done where I'm adding more like Norton seals to the header or better business bureau stuff underneath the button, like every single test like that always increases conversions. Because you got to kind of think like the people who are usually buying stuff, your average consumer, like buying something online for them is a big deal. It's not like you and I who probably order five things a day on Amazon and order a bunch (laughs) of different stuff. And we we don't think twice about it. But for your average person, especially if you're in a lot of these niches where it's 50, 60, 70 year olds buying stuff, they have a ton of anxiety when it comes to buying stuff online. So they think they're going to get scammed. They have no trust in your site. So the more you can kind of ramp up that trust and get rid of their skepticism, I've found that over and over again uh, is probably one of the easiest ways on the checkout page to increase conversions. And I would say the second thing is getting all the super important stuff kind of above the fold. I got a huge conversion bump for a client. This is probably two years ago who um, had kind of a longer checkout page and the the actual like order form was a little kind of further down. And all we simply did was just move the order form up to the top of the page and on the right hand side. So there was like a left column and a right column and then a big kind of like just arrow over there where it's like start your order here. And they got a huge conversion rate just from simply doing that all because it's above the fold and it's there's no hunting for wh- what do I got to do to order. So kind of simplicity, keeping things above the fold and then just more making them feel safe and secure with their order. I mean, that's the name of the game. If, if you know, impulse buy, right? Especially if you're selling something that's an impulse buy, why are you making it harder for people to buy it? For me, the, the one thing that I find odd every time I'm, I'm testing pages is, you know, three-step checkouts why, you know, like, why are you making three steps to check out one step here, put your credit card, go, you know, (laughs) that's how, uh, as a merchant, you want to try to capture the information as quickly as possible and let them move on. If you want to have thank you pages with other offers or whatever, or other information, you know, on a sidebar, that's cool. But your, your main focus here when somebody's kind of at the end of their cart is get their credit card number, get their information and let them, you know, kind of move on. But also talking about, you know, checkout pages. And, you know, we, we touched upon that before is international sales. A lot of U.S. Uh, merchants now are seeing huge optics like from Canada and Australia, just because there's so many people online, just optimizing for currency, literally just adding these different currencies 
helps tremendously. And it's such an easy thing to do. Like merchants don't even realize how easy it is. You can literally call your payment processor and ask them for their international currency options and then pop them into your gateway and you're good to go. <laughs> That's it. You know, it's, it, there's not like a huge amount of integration. There's not a huge amount of work behind it. Charging somebody in their, their, their native currency is going to improve your conversions. It's going to lower your chargebacks and it's going to just create a lot less confusion. Uh, and also you can do price testing in the different markets just because it's $20 in the U S doesn't mean it has to be the equivalent in Canada. We're used to paying more for everything. So just charge us an extra 20%. Nobody's going to notice if people like, it's just every time I go buy books at like, chapters or something, it cracks me up because, you know, they print them with the price already on the sleeve. And I'm like, okay, 1999 US, 3999 Canadian. I'm like, really? That's double. That is not even the exchange. But, you know, obviously I'm in payment. So I noticed like weird shit like that, but, you know, gladly we pay it. So one thing that, you know, uh, just kind of going back to my, my browsers and my Pornhub days, I had tried such a cool test. It was like, it was the funnest test ever. What I did is in GBP, I left the same price as it was in USD. So we were charging $24.95 USD. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to change the symbol. And I'm just going to say GBP $24.95, which was almost like $1.50. Like it was 50% more money. And our conversions barely dropped, like literally, like we were making so much money off the UK sales. It was like, why the hell didn't we do this earlier? So, uh, you know, testing currencies uh, in different markets, not just the currency, but also the price point in the different currency is uh, a very overlooked little tip, I think, uh, on the checkout page. So yeah, I mean, just in general, uh, optimizations, A-B testing, currency conversions, all this stuff, you know, is, is great tips. And I think uh, just focusing on those things when you have, you know, your traffic dialed in and you have really good numbers already. I, I wouldn't say, you know, somebody who's starting out or doing like 10, 20 K a month is going to start focusing on stuff like this. This is really for, you know, merchants that are starting to scale closer to the six, seven figures a month. That's where these things make these like huge differences. Right. I agree. So, so I mean, Thank you, Justin, for your time. This was like a super interesting discussion. And uh, I hope you can come back on the show one time. And we can continue this like really exhilarating conversation on checkout pages and um, have yourself a great day. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hope you found today's session valuable. If you have any questions for me or just want to connect, please feel free to visit my website, mariasparagis.com. That's M-A-R-I-A-S-P-A-R-A-G-I-S.com. I'd love to hear what you're working on. So drop me a line on any hot button issues your business is experiencing. And remember, don't worry about failure. You only have to be right once. <laughs>